You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome and thank you for joining us for another Lozano Smith podcast. I'm your host today, Sloan Simmons, partner in the Sacramento office, one of the firm's co-practice group leaders in litigation who does a lot of other student work. But I'm really lucky to be joined today in kind of an annual gathering that the three of us have here in November, December of each year to go over the latest and greatest forthcoming legislative changes in the student area. And who I'm joined with are our two outstanding Lozano Smith student practice group leaders, Ruth Mendick, a 30 plus year practitioner, um, an expert in student issues, an expert in facilities and business issues, an expert in governance issues. She's done it all out of our Fresno office and joined also by our incredible, slow San Luis Obispo attorney, um, Josh Whiteside, a longtime student practitioner known up and down the state for his expertise in student issues. Um, so again, I'm very lucky to be joined by Ruth and Josh. How are you both? Very good, Sloan. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, thanks, Sloan, for that introduction. I'm sure listeners don't know who I am. Oh, and that's right. That's right. Mr. Whiteside, as you all know, the uh, the the better of the two hosts of Lozano Smith podcast. <laughs> um, and, and today in the interviewee chair, um, I know that there's always a ton of bills. I, and you, you two have selected perhaps maybe the four uh, blockbusters of sorts. We'll also talk a little bit at the end about other bills in general that have been passed and for which Lozano Smith client news briefs are probably in the pipeline. But Josh, why don't we start with one that's gotten a lot of headlines and a lot of attention, including from, for example, um, our governor's office and the attorney general, but the new laws in relation to instructional materials, book banning, et cetera. Yeah, thanks, Lon. I, I think it is helpful to think of this as a blockbuster from the perspective of you know, news articles about it and public interest in it. But really this bill, uh, I think it's important to remember how this all came about. So we're talking about Assembly Bill 1078, which the bill's author specifically said that he wrote this bill in response to things that were happening in Florida with regarding with regards to uh, book ban attempts. And, um, it, you know, there weren't really any headlines on this issue in California until the summer in which we had following uh, this drafting of this bill, uh, an attempt by uh, an Inland Empire uh, school district to try to ban a a social studies textbook that caught the attention of state superintendent of public instruction, Tony Thurmond, who went down and and, uh, went to their board meeting, got the attention of the governor, attorney general. um, And ultimately they decided to stop that whole process before this bill even passed. And so I think, you know, fundamentally here, there's some question about, you know, was this bill ultimately really necessary or not? But be that as it may, what it does do is it prevents school boards in California from prohibiting the use of any appropriately adopted library book or textbook on the basis that it includes inclusive and diverse perspectives. Um, and so that relates back to the FAIR Act, which we have a separate podcast on that our listeners can go listen to. But generally speaking, it's looking at the 
study and role of people of all genders, Native Americans, African Americans, Latino Americans, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, European Americans, LGBTQ, uh, people with disabilities, and other ethnic, cultural, religious, and socioeconomic status groups. And so it's essentially preventing school boards from uh, passing a resolution or taking action to stop or remove a textbook or library book that is trying to um, provide input and, and, um, and, and instruction um, or a perspective on, on those categories of individuals. Josh, I know that, you know, it, it sounds like, uh, you know, I, I did a big buildup um, to this bill, but I'm following you to, to, to in that it's perhaps not as big of a deal as it was, or at least the impact is not as broad or sweeping as we might think if you're complying with California's long existing laws in terms of content and instructional materials. But let's say, let's say that um, a district falls out of compliance with AB 1078. What are some of the consequences that flow under this new statutory structure? Yeah, so if we look at kind of the existing process, normally the uh, school boards across the state, they pass after holding a public hearing a resolution that says that they have sufficient instructional materials, uh, usually around the beginning of the school year, usually around September, kind of the by the eighth week of the year. And then that uh, resolution ultimately gets submitted to the county superintendent. Um, and then they essentially, you know, stamp, you know, approval. Okay, great. Thanks for telling us that you are in compliance. Thanks for telling us that you have sufficient materials. But um, AB 1078 really goes into the weeds of, of this process a little bit more and essentially says that, it, you know, if the county superintendent ultimately decides that there aren't sufficient instruction materials and there's a lack of compliance with this, uh, with the FAIR Act, with the change in law here in AB 1078, then uh, the, they have to provide an opportunity to the school district to remedy the deficiency. And then if it's not remedied, then they go to the, state, the county superintendent would request that the California Department of Education actually go and purchase uh, the required materials to, to uh, rectify that deficiency. And then if that's not done, basically that would have to be done within the first uh, two months of the beginning of the school year. And ultimately the school district that's not in compliance would have to repay uh, that amount or have that amount be de deducted from their principal apportionment during the next apportionment period. Got it. Got it. And additionally, AB 1078 also allows for members of the public to also contest whether or not there are sufficient uh, instructional materials or textbooks. And interestingly enough, it creates this sort of roundabout process where instead of going through the school district and its existing UCP or other uh, textbook, uh, Williams Act type of complaint procedures, they can go directly to the state superintendent to file that complaint, even without the district having done its own investigation or even getting notice that there's an allegation that they're not in compliance, which is, in, in my opinion, pretty unusual um, to kind of work around the, the local procedures and and I'm, I'm not quite sure if anyone has had to deal with that 
yet in light of the passage of this bill, as it is an urgency piece of legislation and go, went into immediate effect when it was signed, but it's certainly so, something that we're keeping an eye out for. Yeah, that to me, Josh, seems a bit odd and unwieldy. Um, but it, it also raises to me the question of, you know, there are various statutory schemes where you can seek relief at a higher level, but even though that relief exists, the doctrine of exhaustion of administrative remedies still requires a first effort at the the lower administrative uh, remedy level. It makes you wonder if, when and if, even if the statute provides for that, if there will be battles down the road of the obligation to to still go through those local remedies first, because that, that's incongruent with what the normal process would be for a whole range of issues for local educational agencies, right? And, and especially strange that they would create this new, unique process for a problem that didn't really seem to exist in California, but was in existence outside of the state. Um, and it seems to be kind of upending um, potentially, uh, you know, the normal sort of local control to be able to regulate and um you know, manage an agency's own affairs, uh, essentially, with its constituents and, and really creating this uh, very strange process of, of uh, having these things go directly to, you know, the state superintendent. Um, just very odd to me that this would be created for this subject at this time. Right. Well, Ruth, that bill aside, why don't you talk to us about a bill that We've seen coming for 10 years now, and it has finally, after numerous efforts over the years to be passed, has finally been passed vis-a-vis high school students when it comes to suspensions for defiance and disruption. Sure. So um, the bill you're referencing is um, SB 274, and um, this is uh, the, the most recent legislation that's directed at um, the 48900K violations, reasons for discipline. And that, of course, is the grounds that's described as a disruption of school activities or willful defiance of the valid authority of supervisors, teachers, and administrators. It seems like most every year we're having a, a bill that addresses this uh, particular code section and part of the legislative history around it is that it's these bills are directed at you know trying to keep kids in school, and that um, th- there have been studies that demonstrate that there are at-risk kids that are more likely to be disciplined for this 48900 violation. So, the intent of the legislation is to help these students continue to stay in school rather than be be suspended. But you know currently. No, you know, no student at any grade level can be expelled for a K violation. Um, no students can be suspended in grades one through eight for a 48900K violation. Currently, only students in grades nine through 12 may be suspended from school for uh, this violation. But under um, SB 274, which will go into effect July 1, 2024, to uh, SB 274 will add the prohibition that uh, 9 through 12th grade students may not be suspended from school for a K violation either. 
And, and this bill also, as of July 1, 2024, uh, extends the suspension, uh, the prohibition on suspension for grades six through eight through July 1, 2029. So the deadline for both of those, uh, six through 12 then on the suspension will be July 1, 2029. What the bill doesn't do is it doesn't take away the right of teachers to suspend students from class for willful defiance. So even though no one can be suspended from school, teachers will still be able to suspend students from class for willful defiance. However, um, when they do that, when the students are, are suspended then and are sent to the office, um, to the administration, the administration now will have a new responsibility to document in the student's file within five days um, the reasons why the student was referred to the administration for uh, a willful defiance violation, and then also the measures that were taken by administration in order to address the behavior. So these are going to be alternative means, you know, of correction type thing. So the administration now will have to create some kind of a document that will identify the behavior for which the student was referred and then identify the grounds that were, or the the measures that were taken to address the behavior. And in the event that there is no action taken, then there has to be documented in this this, um, memo or whatever is gonna be included in the student record, the reason why there was no measures of correction for the student. So it'll, it will add a new layer of, of responsibility for the administrators who are the ones who are receiving the students from the teachers after they're suspended from class. Thanks, Ruth. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, they've tried, they've tried to get this through to high school for at least the last three, if not four years and Correct. been turned away. And so we, we you kind of saw the writing on the wall. This was going to happen sooner or later. Right. I do, in my view, one of the funky things that still exists, and you know, as is often the case, kind of waiting for the state to catch up on it. But according to CalPAD's instructions, you have to report a four eight nine ten teacher suspension from class as a suspension. But when it gets reported out in like the big data, there is no, there hasn't been to date a clear delineation that oh, that's a teacher suspension from class for K, as opposed to a suspension from school for K. Mm-hmm. And so I do hope that CalPADS comes up with some greater clarity on that point so there isn't a misunderstanding when you see K suspensions in the, the state reported data um, that, it's, that it's unlawful or unauthorized suspensions from school as opposed to permitted suspensions from class by teaching staff, um, which is, is continues to. And I see it seems like every year there's kind of a, a, a misnomer in given district's data because it would portray that there's being K suspensions going on even for prohibited grade levels, but that's that's not the case. It's the teacher mm-hmm. suspension from class that still gets reported as a suspension through CalPATH. Well, under the statute there, you know, as of July 1, there shouldn't be any suspensions from school. Right. Well, but, but what I'm raising is because the way CalPATH processes you have to report a 48910 teacher suspension from class as a suspension when you're reporting your suspension data to CalPADS. Right. But when CalPADS reports that out publicly, 
they don't appear to distinguish that it's a teacher suspension from class. So there are instances where districts whose teachers are utilizing parade 910 to discipline, for example, in recent years, kids in junior high between sixth and eighth grade for case suspensions, the way the data reports out, you can't tell that it's a teacher suspension from class. And if you don't know what you're looking at, you might infer that it's a suspension from school for K when it's not. Correct. So I, I just think CalPATS needs to clean that up or CD needs to pay better attention to that so yeah. that there isn't a misunderstanding of district suspension data. Correct. I agree. Josh, do we want to bounce to another discipline-related bill, AB1165? Sure. Yeah, AB1165, kind of a weird bill in that I don't think it actually changes anything or at least doesn't mandate a change. Um, But what it does say is that it encourages uh, school districts and local educational agencies to implement in response to uh, racist bullying, harassment, intimidation, uh, restorative justice practices, which arguably... Uh, school districts should already be doing in this new world of student discipline, um, effectuating other means of correction to address a student's behavior, and then when necessary, uh, looking at suspension uh, and expulsion, uh, depending on you know the factors of that individual situation or the kid's discipline history or both. And so this recommendation or encouragement, uh, you know, I think is an attempt to try to respond continuously to the issue of um, racist behavior being exhibited by students. Ideally, you know, in my opinion, this would be, you know, more going after things like social media and other aspects in our culture that have, um, you know, definitely led to uh, this type of racist behavior being perpetuated on campuses. But that being said, I think it's still helpful to see this direction being given by the legislature um, and at least understand where they're coming from, that they're not actually advocating immediate for immediate removal um, in response to racist behavior and that they're still suggesting that there be these other means of correction uh, and restorative justice practices that be prioritized in response to that behavior, um, which may upset some, some folks in the parent community or some uh, individuals of different interest groups, you know, whereas on the other hand, um, this encouragement of engaging in this restorative justice practice might upset student advocates and, and individuals that think that this type of practice puts the victim in a difficult place to have that type of conversation uh, with the perpetrator potentially um, in this type of format. So I think there's a, a lot of competing interests and, and a lot of importance around this issue and ultimately the legislature just kind of it feels like they just kind of threw up their hands and this is merely an encouragement but still something for administrators to consider moving forward with their discipline practices thank you josh ruth this this fourth one um i want to kick to you sb 291 uh, ironically Though it seems in terms of the subject matter, maybe the one that you wouldn't catch the greatest attention, but may in the long term have the biggest impact. Um, can you talk to us about SB 291? Oh, absolutely. This one um, really uh, goes to the heart of what, you know, some kids claim is their favorite subject in school, right? Recess. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this one uh, talks about 
restricting the ability to use uh, recess uh, or taking away recess as a kind of a disciplinary measure for students. Currently, teachers can restrict, uh, keep kids in from recess kind of as part of a disciplinary uh, reason. It's kind of one of those other means of correction that we've used in the past as a way to, um, you know, communicate to students that their behavior was not appropriate. But now with um, SB 291, that section 44807.5 will be repealed. Again, this is a a bill that will go into effect next school year, so starting July 1st. And then in addition to that, um, the bill adds a code section that provides that elementary schools, this is really directed at K-8 students, so not the high school kids, but the K-8 teachers cannot deny a, a, a student's ability to go out for recess unless they, the teacher believes that the student's participation is going to pose an immediate threat to the physical safety of the student or the student's peers. So presumably if there was some incident maybe involving a fight of some kind uh, or something along those lines, there may, that may be the grounds for uh, supporting keeping that student in from recess. But without those um, findings, uh, the student must be allowed to participate in recess. And also then if, if the student is denied recess because of that threat uh, being, being present, um, the teacher is still required to try to provide other, other methods so that, the, that those threats will be minimized. So perhaps that might be the student can go outside but must be not interacting with other students in the class, those types of things um, seem to be maybe what the statute is getting at in terms of allowing the student to be participate in recess, but not posing the threat to others um, who might be out on the playground. And Sloan, if I could chime in here, you know, one thing with this bill is that when we were looking at it initially and, and hearing from lobbyists, you know, about, about this bill, the original law, the original statutory language was about a teacher's ability to restrict a student's access to recess. The change in language here is now, um, you know, with, with that language repealed, what they've replaced it with is language that applies to more than just teachers. And it refers to school officials, um, which is broader term in my mind than uh, just a teacher. And so it, I think that brings in a whole host of questions about an administrator's ability to even stop a student during recess for purposes of following up on an investigation or to have a restorative conversation with the student who maybe just got in a tussle with another student. Yeah, Josh, I think those are great points. I mean, I feel like this is something which is, again, you understand the underlying kind of rationale or thought in terms of getting kids physical activity and not restraining them from, you know, the benefits of that, that time outside of the classroom, et cetera. But it's almost, you know, there is, there is, which is far too often the case kind of in this legislative um, sausage making process, not really thinking through all aspects of this, especially when there is such a great emphasis on other means of correction and the fact that times uh, during the recess period um, might be when you most often are able to utilize some of these 
other means of correction, like a restorative circle with a couple of kids, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about, I know SB 291 has a definition of recess that excludes from it, not only PE courses, but meal times, um, but that acknowledges that recess might proceed or, or, or follow uh, uh, PE courses or meal times. Can you talk about maybe some of the options districts can be thinking about to retain a period of time where they might impose something that looks like a lunchtime detention or, or other detention type tool as another means of correction, knowing that we have some time to figure all this out because it doesn't go into effect until July 1, 2024. What are your thoughts on, on kind of how those definitions play out? Well, we know that they, that schools have to have the 30 minutes of recess designated in their schedule. Um, and so if they're, would happen to be uh, a time period like over lunch, which was, com- you know, usually um, used for lunch and a play period. Um, districts may want to designate a certain number of minutes for the lunch, and then a certain number of minutes for the recess, rather than combining it all together. Um, that could provide an opportunity for them to use that lunch period as a potential detention period, lunch detention and still allow the student to have some time to uh, meet their 30 minutes of recess requirement. Yeah, and I think that, that, you know, I think there are some out there that might not want to merge the eating time with detention, and so maybe there's a third sliver of time as well that would be either, you know, uh, an extra recess period for the kids that are behaving slash detention period for those that, would be assigned for lunch detention, but there's a variety of different concepts here. But ultimately, I think the point of this legislation is to have um, there be that recess time, that period of play and activity, which uh, hopefully will impact, you know, get, get the kids to get their wiggles out, so to speak, and be ready to learn when it, it's time to go back to the classroom after that afternoon period. Thanks. That's that's really helpful. And, and I know those are kind of the four cornerstone um, bills we want to talk about uh, as we've come out of this legislative season. But I also know there are others. Um, could, could one or both of you kind of give a forecast of some of the other student-related legislation that has been passed in which client news briefs from Lozano Smith will be um, forthcoming as we head into the conclusion of 2023? Sure. Well, you know, as we have every year, there's some going to be some new um, requirements for the annual notice um, that districts will have to be thinking about as the school year winds down and getting ready for next year. And also some new requirements for the school safety plans, which districts are oftentimes uh, getting geared up and getting those into place here at the first part of the year. So there'll be some changes that will be required for both of those. There are also a couple new bills on uh, district requirements and authorizations in terms of uh, inhalers, EpiPens, and um, you know response to opiate uh, overdoses. Each of them is a little bit different, so um, we've kind of outlined those in a CNB that's forthcoming. So that'd probably be the best uh, resource for those. But um, there are going to be some some requirements and some options for districts in terms of what they would like to do in, in having response to those items. I guess the other uh, final one that has gotten a lot of attention is there will be a requirement for all districts to have a, a gender neutral bathroom with 
limited exceptions. Um, that doesn't kick in until July 1, 2026. So we do have some time on that, but it does factor into modernization funding for school districts. So that's something to keep in mind if you've got that coming up on your agenda. Very helpful, Ruth. Josh, Ruth, thank you for joining me as you do every December to go over, or November, December, to go over our, our new legislation. And thanks for all you all the work you do as, uh, as student practice group leaders. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today on another Lozano Smith podcast. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find additional links and details on other topics we have covered in our podcast and resources that are linked within those podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks, Ruth. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Sloan. Thank you, Sloan. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard. Thank you.